0: Suppose someone has been telling you, you've got to stop what you're doing. There's going to be all sorts of trouble that's about to happen. But you didn't listen. Now the consequences are piling up. You're getting fines for whatever it was that you're doing. It looks like you might even go to jail. At that moment, it would be really easy to say, what's the point of doing anything different now? Anything bad that happens is going to happen no matter what I do to try to make amends. Or on the other hand, it's possible to be so blind to what you're doing wrong that the consequences totally catch you off guard, and you're shocked. Where did this come from? How did this happen? In our passage this morning, chapters 8 and 9, Hosea the prophet, I believe, is saying, Watch out and admit you're wrong. Why does he do this? Consider what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, a parallel passage about people getting caught off guard by judgment. Now as to the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come on them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing." That passage in Thessalonians, I think we tend to focus on the chapter before where it talks about Jesus returning for his church and comfort one another with these words and all those sorts of things. And uh, depending on our perspective on the end times, we, we might say, well, I don't need to worry about God's judgment. I don't necessarily need to be ready for that. I just have to be ready for him to take me up to heaven. But I think the parallel with what we see in Hosea and Paul's urgency to those that he is confident our believers in God in 1 Thessalonians 5 would urge us to recognize that we do not want to be caught off guard by God's judgment. What happened for Old Testament Israel in the book of Hosea? They were like those in 1 Thessalonians 5 saying peace and safety right even when destruction fell. They were drunk. They were asleep to judgment that was right around the corner. In chapters 8 and 9, Hosea calls sinful people to recognize God's wrath on them and see how their sin had led to the moment of judgment, how they still needed to repent even then. Or to put it more simply, I think the passage is saying to be warned and to mourn at God's judgment. Last week we saw the need to repent humbly and immediately. Today we see the next step. If we don't repent when God offers the chance, I think the best that we can do is anticipate the judgment coming and confess how our sin has led to it, even in hopes of finding God's mercy once the judgment appears. And so the first chapter is saying this, be warned when God's judgment falls. The first few verses, I think, would say this, when you claim to follow God but ignore Him, judgment follows. Judgment comes like an eagle. We see in chapter 8, verse 1, the be warned is put the trumpet to your lips. Call out to people. Let them know this is coming. What's coming? What's coming? Like an eagle against the house of the Lord, the enemy is appearing. We saw the idea of uh, them being like uh, birds of the sky brought down in chapter 7, verse 12. Here there is a parallel of birds as well, but it's not the people as birds so much as it is the enemies as a bird and eagle swooping down and, and bringing destruction. This destruction is coming despite the fact that the people say, we know you. And despite the fact that they say, we know you, God recognizes they have broken the covenant and rebelled against the law. God sees them even as his enemies and sends enemies against them because they have rejected the good. So there's their words of, obviously we know you, God. Obviously we have a relationship with you. But God sees their hearts. God knows their actions. None of this is hidden from him, and he recognizes that it is a false claim. They're going their own way, not just in breaking the covenant and rejecting the good, but even in the leaders they appoint, and the gods that they worship. So verse 4, they set up kings, they made idols with silver and gold. So God said, here's the king I've appointed for you. Who was the king God had appointed for them? It was Rehoboam Solomon's son. Now obviously he was foolish. But the response of the people was to rebel and to break away, which fulfilled God's word, but didn't excuse their rebellion. And so all of the kings that they set up after Rehoboam were kings that were set up contrary to the line of, of uh, the family of David that God had established to be the true kings in the land. And so they've appointed kings, but not by God's point, uh, appointment. They have made idols. They set up this entire... Parallel system of worship with priests, with a place for sacrifices, with a system of offerings and so forth. With their silver and gold, they made calves, which we're going to see in the next few verses, like the ones the people made when Moses goes up on the mountain and Aaron says, Give me all your gold. And then they make a calf. And then he says, This is your God, or these are your gods. So there's these calf images, these bulls, they're supposed to be, probably in violation of the second commandment, a representation of God, not necessarily worshiping an idol, although that's where they ended up as a different God. It wasn't like they were worshiping Baal and Dagon at first, but they said, we're going to worship the one true God in a way that he hasn't sanctioned or authorized or set up, and then that led them into all sorts of other idolatry. God rejected their false worship. We see this in verses 5 and 6. We're going to see the judgment falling on it in chapter 10, verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon, of vanity, as people will mourn for it. Its idolatrous priests will cry over it, over its glory, since it is departed from it. The thing will be carried to Assyria as tribute. If your God that you're worshiping gets carried off to your enemies as tribute, that shows that it has no power. And God says, this is what's going to happen. I've rejected your calf. I've rejected your false worship because of the foolishness of it. Verse 6, a craftsman made it so it is not God. It will be broken to pieces, which is exactly what happened uh, in the situation with Moses and Aaron, right? The prophets, over and over again, emphasize the foolishness of idolatry. You go to the forest, you cut down a tree. You burn half of it for firewood. You gold plate the other half and set it up in the corner of your house and bring sacrifices to it. It's foolishness. It's madness. It's how can a thing that you made possibly be powerful enough to help you? Because if you made it, it's less than you. Sometimes uh, these gods the people conceived of were less than them because they were people mixed with animal features. We see this in the gods of Egypt, right? You have animals with the head of a jackal or of a cat or of a whatever, right? You have uh, things that are worshipped in certain countries that are purely animals. Uh, So we go from like the Greek and Roman concepts and the Norse concepts of gods that are basically like oversized children that stomp about and do whatever they want. To the half human, half animal gods of various other cultures. Uh, The Philistines worshipped Dagon, a sort of half fish, half man kind of creature. There were gods of wine and partying and all those sorts of things that were half goat, half people. And then you have the descent into just worshiping anything that you happen to see around you. But that's what Romans 1 describes, right? We've talked about this before. There's this sort of descent into foolishness that accompanies rejecting the one true God. You're going to worship the right God in the wrong way. Then you're going to worship the wrong God in the wrong way. And then you're just going to worship anything and everything in whatever way you feel like. And that's just the pattern that people follow. And people who are trapped in those sorts of religions, think about the fear that's associated with them. If there could be an evil spirit in every tree that you walk by, in every rock that you step over, in every stream that you cross, you are constantly trying not to offend those spirits and trying to do things to get them on your side. And it becomes a very violent, bloodthirsty, fear-driven sort of a thing. In parallel to the worship of Baal, but even worse. And even the seemingly more cultured false religions, they are all driven by fear. The fear that you won't measure up to end up being a god or a part of the god. The fear that you haven't done enough. And the difference between that and the hope that God offers through Jesus that we're going to remember at the end of the service is that you can never do enough and you have never done enough and you will never do enough. But Jesus did enough to satisfy God's wrath in your place. So you and I don't have to worship a calf. You and I don't have to worship a stick. You and I don't have to worship some vague concept of spirituality, you and I have the privilege to worship the one true God through the the means that he's appointed, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through me. Not through a golden calf like in Samaria, not through worshiping some pagan god and pretending God will accept that worship, not in coming up with whatever god of your own imagining, not in worshiping yourself. That is not the path to God. The path to God is only through Jesus. And the path to God for the people of Israel was for them to have rejected their calf and turned back to the system of worship that God had made, but they refused to do it, and so God breaks the power of their idol, sends it off as tribute, and shows them in very vivid and graphic ways the foolishness of their idolatry. God reminds them of the nature of sowing and weeping. Sowing and reaping, rather. The weeping in the morning is at the beginning of the next chapter. The nature of sowing and reaping. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. And that's how sin goes. We think if I do this sin, the consequences are controllable. And the reality is they aren't. Israel turned away from God to this degree. God's judgment was going to fall and carry them away. It's like saying you sowed the little breeze in the spring that makes the leaves move a little bit and then the tornado comes through. Sin leads to judgment and righteousness leads to blessing. We see that here and in many other places throughout Scripture. Again, this idea of them trusting in their uh, ability to have crops and support themselves and all of that He says, look around you. There's no food. And even if there were food, your enemies would carry it away. Open your eyes to where you're at. So when you claim to follow God but ignore Him, judgment follows. When you try to fix the consequences of sin on your own, judgment follows. We see this in verses 8 through 14. The nations or the allies, which were in truth enemies, the people went to for help, betrayed them. We see this in verses 8 through 10. Israel is swallowed up. They're among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. I tend to think that this is a bit of a euphemism. Um, I think he's saying something like a trash can or a chamber pot. Like some it's not it's not something valuable. It's not something that anybody would say, Oh, look at that. I want to. I want to possess that. I want to own that. That will give me great advantage to have that thing. It's the sort of thing that gets thrown away. It's the sort of thing that gets discarded. It's the sort of thing that has little to no value in and of itself. He takes it even a step further in verse 9. They've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Now, I think the phrase hired lovers goes with verse 10. There are some... Interesting and very disturbing parallels, I think, with Ezekiel Ezekiel makes and and in kind of a shocking way these crude parallels to the the way in which the people abandon themselves to idolatry and the way in which a female horse in heat is looking for anything and everything to mate with and in that vein of parallel, they are basically going back to the imagery of chapters 1 through 3. They're throwing themselves at any nation nearby that they think will help them. We don't like to think about these sorts of things. We don't like to talk about these sorts of things. But I think we have to wrestle with what the text is saying here. There are people... um, and it's not just women sometimes it's men but in this parallel it's a woman who basically says I'm gonna go from man to man to man to find one that will give me what I want and then when he's not giving me what I want I'll go to the next one when he's not giving me what I want I'll go to the next one and there's just sort of this sad spiral of misery and I mean, quite honestly, decay like your life being used up in the pursuit of something that won't satisfy and brings you sorrow. God said, if you turn to me, going back to the imagery of chapters 1 through 3, Hosea is your faithful husband. Like Gomer, you keep running to those people who beat you and take advantage of you and sell you into slavery. You could come back to Hosea, he's your faithful husband, but you keep going over there. The parallel is God saying to the nation of Israel, I'm your husband, you belong to me, and instead of coming to me for help about the mess that you've gotten yourself in, you keep going to Assyria and to Egypt and to Philistia and to Edom and to whoever else you think in a given moment is going to help you, and they will not help you, they will turn on you, they will harm you, they will make it so much worse for you. God says, You can hire allies among the nations, but your strength is going to diminish. The burden of the king of princes is a hard phrase. Uh, Who is the king of princes? I think the closest parallel is there are places where the words of the prophets are referred to as a burden from God. I think he's basically saying the word of God is going to be fulfilled. You're going to all these princes. God is the ultimate king. The words of the prophets stand as a witness against you. Your efforts are going to fail. They set up altars for pagan gods. We see this now in verses 11 through 14. They set up altars for pagan gods. Since he multiplied altars for sin, they become altars of sinning for him. There is this sense in which sin enslaves us. We're still responsible for it, but we can get to a point where we're so conditioned to going after sin that it seems like we have no choice, that it's enslaved us And and ruined us and that we're trapped. They thought that they were in control. We can build these altars, and then we can still avoid the consequences that God has said, but they became enslaved by their false system of worship. They ignored God's way to go their own way. Says, I wrote for him ten thousand precepts of my law. They were regarded as a strange thing. I told you what was true, I told you which way to go, I told you what was right. And you've said, I don't want any of that. And yet God's sacrificial gifts earlier in Hosea, he says, I'm the reason that you have the grain and the cattle and the wine and the oil and all of the things that you're using in worship of pagan gods. I'm the reason you have them. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it in this sort of mockery of what the priests were supposed to do, according to the law. But the Lord has taken no delight. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish them for their sins. We're going to see that phrase again in chapter 9. It says in chapter 9, verse uh, 7, the days of punishment have come, the days of retribution have come. And then in chapter 9, verse 9, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. So all throughout these two chapters, for the people of Israel, it is, you should be warned, you should mourn the fact that you, your actions have led to this moment, but for God, it is a remembering of the things that he has said, of their list of sins against him, and their refusal to repent. Their attempts to protect themselves fail versus God's power. He says, they will return to Egypt. There's another phrase later in Hosea where it says they will not return to Egypt. We'll talk more about that when we get there. It's not a contradiction. I think he's emphasizing two different things. But the point of returning to Egypt is here, I think, pointing the fact they're going their own way. They're enslaved by their sin. They're going to face destruction. Why, verse 14, because you've forgotten God instead of, Turning to God and his temple, you've said, we're going to build palaces. We're going to be like the nations around us. You've multiplied fortified cities. What was supposed to protect them? It wasn't horses. It wasn't chariots. It wasn't fortifications and walls. These were marks of pride, like King Uzziah, right? He accomplishes all these things militarily, and people would look at it and say, the land is in a really good spot because you've built all these walls, and you have these fortified cities. And you have armies and soldiers and all of those sorts of things. And God repeatedly told the people of Israel, don't have lots of horses because you'll trust in them. Don't have lots of chariots because you'll trust in them. Don't think that your fortifying of the land is the thing that's going to give you victory over your enemies. Because you know what was true of the land of Canaan when the people of Israel walked through it? What was around the city of Jericho? A big wall. What was around a bunch of other cities? Walls. What happened to the people of Canaan when God brought the people of Israel in? The walls fell and the people conquered. It's not about the walls. It's about whether God is with you or he isn't with you. Or we could flip it the other way, whether you're with God or whether you're not with God. God's clearly not with them. He says at the end of chapter 8, I'll send a fire to consume your dwellings. So as we look at chapter 8 and we sum it up, if we don't repent when God gives us the chance consequences will follow but we shouldn't be at this moment of being completely clueless about it just being caught off guard there's this warning that no one pays any attention to we shouldn't be so blind to the things that we're doing that we didn't even see where it would all lead but even if we move past that and we see wow I can't believe that I did this and that this is what's about to happen God wants more than just an open-eyed anticipation of what he's going to do in judgment, he wants repentance even in that moment. That leads us to chapter 9, that we should mourn when God's judgment is your fault. We've talked about this before. Not all that seems like God's judgment is immediately because of a sin I did. There's been tornadoes and bad weather throughout the U.S. in the last week. If you have a tree fall in your house and it smashes your house or your barn or whatever else, like one that we drove by on the way back yesterday. Is that because you lied last week? Or you yelled at someone in your family two weeks ago? Or you didn't pay something about your taxes? Not necessarily. Not all that seems like God's judgment, whether it be disaster in terms of weather or in terms of fire, famine, flood, all those sorts of things, not all that seems like God's judgment is immediately a direct correlation between something I did wrong and God punishing me. But the reality is we should always consider whether that's the possibility. If some great difficulty or problem or unexpected thing overwhelms us in the course of our life, we should at least pause and ask ourselves, is all well between me and God. Because even if that thing is not immediately a punishment for a sin that we did, it at the very least could be an opportunity for us to pause and reflect and consider, where do I stand with God? In Israel's case, the judgment of conquest and exile was absolutely the result of them ignoring God. Because we see the progression. Deuteronomy laid out what's going to happen. What's going to happen if you turn away from me? You're going to have famine, you're going to have drought, you're going to have, in connection with those things, waves of insects and disease on your animals and all of those sorts of things. Then it's going to escalate to your enemies coming and raiding and carrying some of you off into captivity. And then it's going to escalate to you being put into exile until you repent. So God laid out what was going to happen. And we see the response of the people of Israel and the judgments and the things God brought to arrest their attention, and they refused to pay attention. So we see that this is the fulfillment of God's word. So in the the book of Hosea, it's really clear the judgment that's coming on them is their own fault. It can be less clear for us in any given moment in the course of our lives, but because it was really clearly their fault and they were so blind to it, we should at least allow the possibility that could happen in our lives as well. How do we get at a point of recognizing if a particular situation is a result of something that I have done that I need to deal with with God? I think a lot of it comes down to having the attitude that it's at the end of, I think, Psalm 139, where it says, examine my heart, see if there is anything wicked in me. If we are regularly in the habit of asking God to examine our hearts and reveal to us ways in which we are turning away from him, I think that puts us in a good place to not be in a position where we're caught completely off guard by the consequences of our sin. If we are in connection with other believers, having open and honest conversations, not just about the fact that we're sinning, but about here's truth from God's word, and will you pray for me to uh, help me with this thing, and then a genuine desire to to have hearts that are soft and tender to God's work and not this sort of isolation that can be really easy for us in the United States. I'm over here. I've got this. No one else needs to do this. I will figure it out on my own. There are so many people, whether they be people in ministry leadership or people who are just everyday church members, where people have said, I can fix this on my own. I don't want anybody else to know about it, and I can handle it. And that led to so many disasters. Because when we hide things and cover them up and don't seek help from the avenues that God has provided for help, it's not really likely that the outcome is going to be good. Now, our society has taken this too far. They've said, Dealing with problems means everybody has to know every bad thing you've ever done. That's not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is, if I know that I am sinning in a particular way, I absolutely need God's help, probably need my husband or wife's help, I need the help of some godly believer to pray alongside me, I would be more than willing to pray with you and to try to help encourage you here's what the bible says about all these things it's not every last person has to know every last thing about everything you've ever done but it's also not no one will ever know anything of what's going on and this ties into the interactions that we have with different people right because if the only contact you and i have with each other is on sunday we can cover up an awful lot about what's going on in the course of our lives if we never talk to somebody on a Friday or on a Tuesday or in the middle of the day, uh, there's a lot that we can be unaware of what's going on in people's lives. There was a couple that I remember when we were at a former church, and they sat 10 feet away from Kelly and I. All of a sudden it came out, they were... They were getting a divorce because the husband had cheated on his wife like five times and the counseling had failed. And and the whole thing just sort of blew up and, and, and it ended. I don't know how many times I looked at them in Sunday school and I had no idea. Now, there were people in the church who were aware of some of the things that were going on. I guess they were in counseling with the pastor of the church. I'm not saying that no one had any idea... I'm just saying the fact that I could sit 10 feet away and have no idea that they had any problems or struggles and even have any need or desire to pray means that I have a burden in my heart that you and I, in the course of our relationships with, in marriages, with kids, just with other believers in the church, that we're not so, I guess to put it, bluntly, we're not so proud that we're unwilling to admit that we need help. We're not so hypocritical to think that we can cover everything up and put on a certain face when we come to church and everything will just work out. And I say that about about myself as well, because there have been moments when there are things that I was not dealing with with God and probably most of you had no idea. And our hearts can be deceitful and our faces can not match up with what's going on in the middle of us. And I, there's a balance of this too, right? It's not like you have an argument on the way to church and you march in and you're like, we don't have to do that. But at the same time, if, if there's some huge conflict on your way to church... And you walk in and you're like, that's so fake. God knows that there's a problem. You know that there's a problem. God has help for you. Don't be like the people of Israel who don't, didn't ever deal with their sin and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And God had to go to extreme lengths to fix it in their lives. So, going back to the people of Israel. God kept his promises to give them famine and thirst and losses in battle if they turned away. God wanted their full allegiance and obedience, so if they turned away, he gave them warning signs to call them back to worshiping him. But they didn't listen, so God sent harsher and harsher judgments to seize their attention, and even then there was an opportunity for them to turn. The reason I say mourn when God's judgment is your fault is from verse 9. He says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nation's. Don't pat yourself on the back. Don't be proud of what you've done. What have you done? You have played the harlot forsaking your God. You have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. I don't think we like the implications of what he's saying. But he's basically saying, everywhere you can lay down and be unfaithful, you have been. And you got what you wanted out of it. But there's going to come a day when the things that attracted the enemy, the the nations around you to you, fail, and they're not going to want you anymore. Why did they want Israel? Or what Israel could offer? They wanted Israel because Israel had crops and gold and all those sorts of things. Why did Israel have those things? Because of God's blessing. When God takes that blessing away, the nation's going to have any interest in the people of Israel anymore? No, and it's going to escalate and escalate and escalate till they're giving their idol, their most treasured possession, to the people that are attacking them as tribute to try to get them away. Verse two, threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and new wine will fail. So reckoning God's blessings as the work of your idols leads to judgment. They thought, we have all these blessings of crops and children and grain and wine and whatever else. All these things are the result of our idolatry, and our evil gods our, 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 the gods that we are worshiping instead of the true God has provided these things for us. This is very close to what Matthew describes as the unpardonable sin. Attributing the work of God to the work of demons. This is fascinating to consider that parallel. Jesus cast out demons and they said, you're crazy, you have a demon, you're doing it by Satan's power. The people of Israel had God's blessings and they said the reason that we have God's blessings is because we're worshiping false gods they're saying false gods are blessing us when really it was the true God that was blessing them. So the bread and wine that they use for parties and pagan feasts and sometimes hypocritically brought to God in sacrifice would fail and become that which would defile them. We see this in verses 1 through 4. He says, They will not remain in the Lord's land. They'll eat unclean food. They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat will be defiled, for it will be for themselves alone. What is this mourner's bread and being defiled? If you had someone who died and you touched the dead body, you became unclean. And if you ate during the course of the day, that bread was unclean. And so here's something that has become defiled because of its contact with something God said was unclean. Now you become unclean by contacting it as well. And God says... None of it's going to come into my house. I'm not going to accept it. What are you going to do on the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? If you have nothing to bring to God because all your sacrifices have become defiled and the land has failed you in terms of all the things you're supposed to bring as a sacrifice, what are you going to do? Verse 6 says Egypt will gather them up, Memphis will bury them, weeds will take over their treasures, thorns will be in their tents. Their feasts are going to end in famine. Their supposed friends will be their conquerors. So reckoning God's blessings as the work of idols leads to judgment. Spiraling into depravity is a sign of or accompanies God's judgment as well. Look at verses 7 through 9. Prophets became fools. He says, the prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. This echoes back to what we saw in chapter 4. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Verse 5, the prophet will stumble with you by night. What we saw last week was this idea of uh, he has torn you by the prophets, slain you by the words of the prophets. Verse 5, at first the prophets serve as a warning and then they get ensnared and caught up in all the sins the people are doing and encourage the people in their sin and even the prophets fail and become fools, and become foolish. Verse 8, this picture of Ephraim being a watchman with God as a prophet. We see the, in the Old Testament this picture of being a watchman. There is a, um, uh, there's the passage where it says, if you see the evil coming, you don't warn people their blood is on your head. I think that's in Ezekiel. There is the idea that there's someone standing on the city wall watching out for evil coming. Here's Ephraim supposed to be a watchman, a prophet, foreseeing the evil, warning the people, getting them to turn away from it. What happens instead? Ephraim ends up over here in drunken parties of idolatry, completely blind to the destruction that's coming, and gets conquered himself. Verse 9, holiness ends in depravity. They have gone deep in depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity he will punish their sins i forgot to copy over the cross reference but there's historical allusions here to times in israel's history where they committed just gross immorality and murder and all these sorts of things and he's saying there's echoes of this again and god's not going to spare you for it rejecting the true god for idols leads to judgment they should have been mourning they should have been saying we have attributed god's work to our idols We repent of that. We have been walking in depravity. We repent of that. We are sorry for our sin. As it says in the book of James, uh, towards sinners, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And God will exalt the humble even as he breaks the power of of the proud. They should have recognized that rejecting the true God for idols was a sin and turned away from that. But instead... What happens? Verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal, Peor, and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. God saved them, and they ran after Baal. And in their worship, there's a a book that I've never had the opportunity, I've never taken the time to read, um, but the basic concept of the book is we become what we worship. If you worship a God that is a God of fertility and a God of immorality and a God of disregard for life, what are you going to become like? That's what you're going to be like. They became as detestable as that which they loved. God saved them and they went to Baal instead, verse 10. Their glory turned to loss of life and of children, verse 11, reference to bird again, Uh, As for Ephraim, their glory will fly fly away like a bird, just like they were like birds caught in the snare back in chapter 7. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Though they bring up their children, I will bereave them until not a man is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Verse 16 repeats this. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. Their glory turns to loss of life and of children. Their idolatry leads to rejection by God. All their evil is at Gilgal. I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. Their princes are rebels. And then verse 17 sums it up. Because they wouldn't listen, Because they wouldn't repent, their nation would fall as God remembered and punished their sin. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him and they will be wanderers among the nations. Going back to chapter 7 and verse 13. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. Chapter 9 and verse 9. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Because they refuse to repent, because they refuse to turn, because they refuse to mourn their sin, Exile was coming. These chapters are sobering. If you or I have resisted God's calls to repentance until the moment the consequences come, at the very least, we ought to see it coming. We ought to mourn the fact that it is our fault that we are in this moment of God's reproof. But even in that moment, God offers opportunities for restoration and for renewal. God calls us, I think, in passages like 1 Thessalonians 5 and even in Hosea 8 and 9, to be awake and alert, fighting hard against our sins so it does not dull us to sleep like those who are drunk. That we need to be humble and quick to confess our sins so we mourn and turn back to God before a time of harsh rebuke instead of after. But the reality is, we're not going to do this on our own. As we're going to remember here in just a few moments, we need Jesus. We need his deliverance, we need the forgiveness that comes only through him, because in our own attempts to follow God, our self-control fails, our resolve crumbles, and we will not succeed. But if we turn to Jesus, seek the power of the Spirit to overcome the deeds of the flesh, appeal, to, uh, ask Jesus to intercede on our behalf as he has promised to do, and find mercy from God the Father, then we can succeed by God's grace where the people of Israel failed. God said, here's a picture, pay attention to it. They ignored the picture. God said, here's what's going on in your nation. They ignored what's going on. God said, repent now, repent humbly. They wouldn't repent and they weren't humble. God said, even in this moment of looming judgment, You can be warned, and you can mourn your sin and turn back to me. And they refuse to do it. You and I don't have to follow down that path. When God gives us a picture, a a convicting thing, as we read his word or as we listen to a message or just in a conversation with someone, and we realize, I can't keep doing this thing anymore. I need God's help. I need to turn from it. We can ask for his help right then. When God wakes us up to the condition of what's going on in our lives and we're like, how did it end up this way? We can turn to Him and ask for His help, and He will give us help. When we, if we get to a point where God has to harshly call us to humble repentance and to do it like right now before it's too late, we have opportunity by God's grace to do it right then and there and turn and say, I should have done it here, and I should have done it here, and I'm doing it here. But I think these chapters would say to us, even if you ignored this, and you ignored this, and you ignored this, and you've come to the moment when the consequences of your sin are catching up to you, whatever those might be, fines, legal ramifications, loss of relationships, whatever else it is, you and I have to, even in that moment, humble ourselves and say, I see God's reproof coming, and I don't know that He's going to turn it aside, but I still need to repent and turn back to him anyway because it's easy for us in that moment to have the attitude. It's all going down the tubes anyway. Why not just finish out and at least enjoy the the pleasure of the sin because I've already crossed the line and bad consequences are already going to happen. Why not keep going back to that sin? And so if you're enslaved to whatever sin it is, Could be a sin like drunkenness the bible doesn't say drinking one drop of alcohol is a sin but it does say drunkenness is a sin because it's set in direct contrast to being controlled by the spirit if we're ruled by and let's be honest it's not just alcohol could be i have to have my cup of coffee or i will be a horrible person everyone around me that parallels drunkenness and that is being ruled by something and that's what ephesians 5 says not to do it could be food you say if i don't get food when i want it the way that i want it then I'm going to make everyone around me miserable. That parallel is being controlled by a substance rather than by God. So it's easy for us to pick on alcohol and drugs and easy for us to completely ignore gluttony and things that give us pleasure that we're like, but this is my thing, so I'm not going to make a big deal about it. Drunkenness or being ruled by a substance. Let's say that's the sin that is a problem for you. Let's say it's gluttony, and you say, I don't think I can say no to food, and I really enjoy it, so I might as well just keep enjoying it. Let's say it's drunkenness, and you're like, I've got a DUI, and my wife says, if I keep doing this, this is going to be a real problem in our marriage, or whatever else. You could be like, well, at least if I keep doing this, I don't have to deal with all that stuff. I can forget it for a while. Let's say it's the caffeine thing. You're like, but if I don't drink it, then I'm going to have a headache, and if I have a headache, I'm going to be miserable, so I might as well just do that and continue to be ruled by this thing instead of being controlled by the Spirit because I don't want the, I don't want the difficulty of getting past being mastered by this thing. Let's talk about other things that are huge problems in churches. Gluttony, being ruled by things that we like, as long as it's not the things that everybody else is doing that we can point fingers at, is one of the things that's a problem in churches. What are other things that are problems in churches? Gossip. Or mocking people. There was a moment in high school where I derived great fun from just making comments about people around me in the class, and I came to realize that... um, That was not going well, and nobody liked me when I acted that way. And so I could have said, well, they already don't like me, so I might as well just keep doing it. Or with something like gossip. They already assume that I'm just going to say things about them, so I'm just going to keep saying things about them, because if you're already getting blamed for it, why not just live up to their expectations? But God says slander and gossip and speaking evil of other people and all of those sorts of things characterize the old way of life apart from Jesus. And so if we really belong to Jesus, we can't live that way anymore. And so it might be really hard to rebuild those relationships. And it might seem like it makes sense to stay here and keep doing the sin, even though it's bad and even though it brings consequences. Even in that moment when the consequence is already coming, we have to say, by God's help, I'm going to stop. And it's going to be a hard road, but I'm going to move past it. What are other things? Sometimes it's something like harboring hatred and bitterness in our heart towards someone else. We're like, this other person already doesn't like me. They already have done all these to- terrible things against me, and I've done them against them. So why let go of the bitterness? It's not like it's ever going to get better. At least if I have this, I have this thing I can hang on to and look at and and... and God says, even if that person never forgives you, you can't hold on to bitterness in your heart. Even if they never ask for your forgiveness, you can't hold on to bitterness in your heart. What are other things that enslave us, that bring horrible consequences that we don't want to deal with because we think they're going to ruin our lives, even though they already have, we just haven't realized it yet? Christians who are involved in things like pornography and all of the associated things that go along with that, various ways of being unfaithful in marriage or impure in our walk with God. We might say, this has been true for people in churches, people who are conservative or moral or whatever. Um, Well, they already caught me for doing the thing, and I'm already going to have to do jail time, so why not just keep doing it? Because what's the point of repenting? Or this has already ruined my relationship with this person. Why not keep doing it? Because I'll feel good at least for a few moments in the midst of all of the wreck that my life has become. Even if you were to go to jail, even if your marriage were to end in disaster, even if your kids never wanted to speak to you again, it is important enough for you to deal with that sin and to have victory over it that you should be a whole lot more concerned about how God views you continue to be enslaved to that than how everybody else around you does. Going back to what I said earlier, This is not a sort of thing where we have to say, every sin that I've ever done, everyone in the whole world has to know. I'm just going to post it for everybody to see. But the Bible verse that says your sin will find you out and all those sorts of things is true. Like sooner or later, something happens and the thing that we thought we had under control blows up in our face. You and I can't love crossing the boundaries that God has set and say that we belong to God. You and I can't say, my reputation, my whatever, is more important than me dealing with this before God. And sometimes God gives us opportunities to deal with it before it becomes a huge scandal, and sometimes we have to deal with it after. And I've seen both things in the context of churches, much like ours. What other things could enslave us could be something like greed. Greed takes a lot of forms. Could be gambling, could be um, impulsive shopping, could be any number of things. If it's something that's easy to pick on like gambling, you're like, you get to this point, people seem to get to this point where they're just like, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, and their families don't have what they need, and sometimes they've done things that have crossed the line legally or whatever else, someone in that moment could say, I'm not getting the money back. I'm not getting my family back. This problem has already come into my life. What's the point of repenting now? It could be stealing in a different way. It could be saying, hey, you know what? My family needs this, but I have this hobby, or this interest, or this whatever, so I'm going to spend all this money on this thing, I'm going to take away from what's actually needed over here. And then you get in a point where you're like, now I need to deal with this, but I've already done this, what am I supposed to do? Just because it's a hard moment where there are consequences, where there are difficulties, where there are things to work through, doesn't mean that we abandon repentance it doesn't mean that we forget turning back to god what's the solution to all of these different things the greed the covetousness the lust the anger the gossip the lies whatever it is that can be going on in our hearts that we say the consequences are already coming why bother turning away from it the thing that frees us the thing that gives us hope is the thing that we're going to remember in just a moment which is Jesus died to deal with sin so that Paul can write to people at the church at Corinth and say, your pagan background said you're immoral and you're wicked and you're thieves and you're murderers and you're whatever, and such were some of you. There is freedom in the gospel. There is forgiveness in the gospel that says, even though the consequences come, that guy in jail can trust Jesus and can be right with God. Even though the consequences come, that guy can lose his family because of selfish choices that he's made, and he can still have a right relationship with God. Even though the consequences come, fill in the blank, it is more important that we have a right relationship with God regardless of all of this. So what is Hosea saying? Be warned, mourn, Because even in that moment of judgment coming, there is an opportunity for repentance. What you and I have to say is, do I love my sin or do I love the God I claim to follow more? And the only way that we're going to have the strength to say, I love God more than my sin, is through the sacrifice that Jesus made, the power that the Spirit gives us, and the love that the Father has shown us in his mercy. That's where we have to keep turning day in and day out over and over and over again. Because there's no forgiveness apart from the cross. And there is no freedom apart from the work that God does in our lives. Be warned about sin. Mourn at sin. Even in the moment of God's judgment, there is still hope for repentance. Let's pray. Father, we look at these truths. These are hard truths. These are sobering truths. But we need these truths. I think probably every one of us in this room, to some degree or another, has been trapped and enslaved by sin, and we haven't wanted to deal with it because we think that it's too late. And we know that it's not too late because your word says, if we turn to you, you'll forgive us and cleanse us, but we still believe the lie that it's too late, that Satan is telling us, because, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with you, all things are possible. You can save those for whom it seems there is no hope. You can free those for those who seem there could be no victory over the thing that they are enslaved to. The problem is not any lack of power in you, Lord. The problem is our lack of faith and our unwillingness to turn away from the things that are destroying us and damning us and ruining us because we derive ten seconds of pleasure for them from them and an eternity of misery if we keep loving them and not turning to you. Help us to heed the warnings of this passage. Help us to genuinely mourn our sin as you reveal it to us. To the extent that any of us in this room are faithfully walking with you in this moment down the road when we come across a sinful habit that we have held on to or that you have shown to us. Again, the same process. Help us to turn from it, to repent of it, to mourn it, to see where it leads so that we are not destroyed by it. Because the reality is either we're dealing with some kind of sin or a number of sins right now, or we were last week, or we will be a month from now. And so this has reference to all of us, no matter how young or old we are, no matter how long we've been a part of this church or not. Work on our hearts, Lord, I pray. Amen.